Welcome to Destined to the Swift, a movement, a mantra, and a podcast. We are here to explore the stories of how creatives of color arrive to disrupt the world. I'm your host and resident storyteller, Felicia. I'm a designer, creative activist, business maven, your local homegirl, and most importantly, I'm a disruptor. On this week's episode, we have Eugene Lumpkin, the strategic designer. Eugene is a multidisciplined, multifaceted designer that uses creativity and design thinking methodology to come up with innovative ideas to solve problems, not only in fashion, but social and ecological problems alike. Growing up in the Midwest, like me, after completing his degree in clothing design from the University of Minnesota, he began designing private label collections for Bergdorf Goodman, Neiman Marcus, Takashimaya, department stores, and a signature collection for American designer Alexander Julian. He extended his portfolio of work into Canada and started his own label out of Italy. All this happened before landing in New York City to further advance himself working under the world-renowned Perry Ellis. Eugene and I met through our exclusive Global Executive Master's Program studying strategic design and management at Parsons School of Design. Unique opportunity has given us both an opportunity to envision, research, study, and design new sustainable business models in the apparel industry that will help improve the lives of the people that create and the people that live in it. Eugene and I instantly vibe as we're both passionate about sustainability and talk about how to incorporate strategic design and design thinking as tools to really revolutionize the fashion apparel industry. We recorded this episode live from his design studio in the heart of Europe, Belgium. Welcome, (laughs) Eugene, to Destined to Disrupt, Eugene Lumpkin in the house. All the yeah. way from where are you right now? Brussels, Belgium. Yeah. Wow. Bren, how are things in Brussels right now? Is that things um, opening back up? Or? Yes, actually, we did. Actually, last this past week, Wednesday, things opened up. You need mm-hmm. to wear a mask indoors, but everything is open now. Mm-hmm. And yeah, people basically people lost their minds on Wednesday it was so crazy you heard music playing places and finally Friday Thursday evening Friday people kind of gathering but they are limiting the amount of people that can gather and they're now I think to maybe people 30 and up getting vaccines so we're actually behind really behind here versus the U.S. so right right Passing the vaccine out like candy around yeah. here. There are so many vaccines, like a lot of them are expiring because people aren't taking them. So it's oh, it's mm-hmm. pretty wild over here in the States, especially in California. Yeah. But I just saw that on the news, like people aren't taking it or they're not getting the second doses. So like you uh, have yeah. to do something with them because I guess they have a shelf life or something. So yeah, yeah you have to have the same. Yeah, exactly. Well, here they were very slow to the game. And I have to say, it's funny because I, yeah, I love living here in Europe and I'm so glad I had the opportunity to, to move here, how I did, when Let's I Let's talk about that. Let's talk about how you got to Europe. Let's talk about this journey. We will, we will. What I will say is it's very interesting now, though, because there's a lot to be very proud and grateful and gracious for being American because the U.S. is leading so many things right now. And I think the whole COVID, at first we know what happened. You know what right. I mean? It's probably what's going on in the U.S. 
when it first came right. out. But I really think the action that the, the U.S. has taken has really led the world. And now seeing on both sides, on both sides, there's advantages and, and so on. But I don't know, I guess I'm really glad with how they have stepped up and moved forward in the States. Yeah, you know, we so. definitely have to like recognize the privilege, obviously, like, and being American, as much as we complain about this place, we complain it's about true. this place. So you have to yeah. recognize the privilege and the access. That's just kind of how I've looked at it. So it's, even though I'm dying to get to Europe, okay, I'm still figuring out that extra strategy. I'm still very grounded here and the work that needs to be done here locally. So, yeah, so getting to your question. Yeah. Yes, let's talk about how you, let's talk about your journey. Yes, like, yeah, because you're so, from the Midwest. Yes, from like the Midwest, moi, in Minnesota. Okay. I moved from Minnesota first to Canada. To, to Montreal. Wow. Company up there. And I, when I was younger, I was, because my grandparents, my grandmother was in New York. So I would spend my summers there during college. And when I was younger, I always loved being in New York. And I couldn't imagine that I wouldn't be any place but New York when I got done with high school. But mm-hmm. that didn't actually happen. Actually, I got a job in, in Minnesota in design because I studied in fashion for a company. And yeah, I was working there for a while and then kind of made my way to another company in Minnesota. So mm-hmm. I ended up really spending my 20s in there, still traveling a lot. You know, okay. I traveled to Europe for work. Um, mm-hmm. So I had that, uh, that advantage and opportunity. Mm-hmm. Spent a lot of time in New York and all of that. And finally, I moved when I had the chance to move, I moved to Montreal to work for a company there and then wow. New York um, wow. in like the early 2000s, finally. And my grandmother was so happy because she had all, since I was a kid, she had assumed I was going to be going to school, getting my fashion degree in New York and moving right for sure. Right. That's how I was growing up. I was everything and I did commercials. I acted, I did all this stuff. So she thought for sure I was going to be in New York mm-hmm. and I didn't get there till actually a little bit later on. So but I finally did get there and yeah. And it was really great for me. I think it was a place I really needed to be. I always felt like a fish out of water in Minnesota, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Growing up, I, yeah, I was kind of the outsider. I had to kind of find my way. I was definitely different. It, it's funny now because yeah, so much has changed and mm-hmm. Minneapolis is, is more diverse than it was when I was growing up. And yeah, so much has changed. And But when I was growing up, things were a bit different. But I have to say, looking back, even though in my adolescence, mm-hmm. I you know, had all of these, this angst and everything. Actually, I, I actually had a pretty good upbringing when I was younger. Mm-hmm. I had, I, I was in an environment that was actually quite sheltered. And um, that gave me the freedom, actually, to be creative, to express myself without fear, you know. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, what cultivated that creativity coming up in Minnesota? Because I know for me coming up in Cleveland, my dad had to really push me to, like, get into stuff because it wasn't necessarily like in my neighborhood. Like there wasn't like these activities. I studied like music and I thought I was had all these like creative expressions. I went to acting school. But, you know, I'd be interested to know, like, what resources were available to you? Yeah. Coming well, up. That, well, yeah, I it was interesting because my parents were 
really big advocates. And I, I don't know if I told you this to my brother, as I am with like the arts and all that kind of stuff, my brother is with sports. Gotcha. So he, he ended up going, playing in the NFL. He played for the New Orleans Saints for wow. five years. And my nephew is, he's with an NBA organization now. He played here in Europe. And also I have sports side and an art side. And my parents really supported and cultivated us in whatever it was that we were passionate about. And they just really made us believe that we could conquer the world. I grew up with that. Like my mom and dad just believed we were the best and we could do it. And I never thought that I couldn't. And so as a kid, I was just always very creative drawing and all of that. I was very dramatic. You don't say. (laughs) Exactly. Oh, I was dramatic. And anyway, my mom was like, I have got to get him into something kind of like structured because he has such a thing for this. And she thought I had a gift as well, but I was you know, very, very gifted, understatement, but I love to dance and all that kind of stuff. So she actually, I don't know how she ended up, but there's a theater called the Children's Theater. Mm-hmm. They're actually a world-renowned children's theater in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. At the time, it was started by a man who was the creative director there, and he was really brilliant. And mm-hmm. it was just eye-opening. So I was like, I think, six or seven. Wow. My mom took me there to audition. Wow. I had no idea what an d- audition was. I right. didn't know I couldn't do it. I wouldn't do it or whatever. I went with a suit and tie on. All the other kids who had been in dance classes, they had leotards on and I was like, I have like dress shoes on and a tie and a shirt. And perhaps the director and the people that were there thought, okay, this kid. And I just did my thing. I made it and made it and made it through. And I finally made it to the final cut and I was accepted in the theater. And so I started like acting and they trained me and I was acting professionally as a kid. Wow. I had that structure and it was really good. And honestly, I'm not affiliated with the Children's Theater, but since they have gone on and they're, they're still in Minneapolis producing mm-hmm. really great shows, but recently, a few years ago, they produced The Wiz. So for the first time, they did The Wiz, and I was enamored with The Wiz as a kid. And I remember telling the producers to do The Wiz. Back at, then. You know, they, I kept back then. And they wouldn't even do The Wizard of Oz because they weren't even do, they wouldn't even do musicals. They did like the original productions of, not the Walt Disney versions, they would Mm -hmm. do the original productions, but it was such a a great learning and exposure. They had international costume designers, makeup artists, people coming in. And I was so exposed to all of this as a kid, loved it. And I honestly, I, I was cast in a lot of productions. And when they had Pinocchio, I thought I could be Pinocchio. Oh and God. it wasn't until I was older that I realized when they were talking about the more recent productions that have been more diverse, mm-hmm. I guess as a kid, I didn't know I didn't have a shot. I guess they would never have a cast at a Black Pinocchio. I, but <laughs> I didn't know that. You know what I mean? Right, right. I didn't, didn't know even know that, that was a limitation. Yeah, I had no idea. I had no, I was out there doing, they would cast me in things and mm-hmm. so forth. But I didn't know that the odds were against me. You know mm. what I mean? And my parents never told me the odds were against me. I mean, I they knew that, I think, but they kind of raised us with, you can do it, you can do mm. it. So that's what my thing was. I think that was very, very um, foundational thing. That yes. And they did the thing with my brother in sports. You know? Right, right. Um, Question for you. When did you realize that moment that, hey, 
they may not pick me or, hey, since you kind of grew up in this euphoric upbringing, you were able to express yourself creatively. You were supported. So at what point did you reach a aha moment or this realization that, hey, like I could be discriminated against? When did that happen for you? There's a few things that happened. Well, one, I think being, first of all, gay. When I was young, Start I, I didn't even know gay, what it was, but I was already being called out before I even knew what what it, it was. So I never mm-hmm. really had a chance to be in the closet. Mm-hmm. And so I faced adversity, I think, from younger people in my own community for being different, being effeminate or whatever. And so that was the first adversity that I kind mm-hmm. of faced. And mm-hmm. I kind of went towards the theater and the acting and all this kind of stuff as my um, safe place. Mm-hmm. And so that was the first adversity that I felt. Mm-hmm. And then by doing these things, and then I did some commercials and stuff like this when mm-hmm. I was older. And of course, once they see you on TV, then they have a different kind of respect. So I kind of really channeled a lot of that towards I'm going to be successful and then I'll show you. So that was my first adversity. And then from like race or so, I would say there was one incident that happened. I mean, a few incidents that I wasn't exactly sure. I didn't know what was actually happening. Mm -hmm. Um, But when I got a little bit older, I think Mm -hmm. that's when it, it, it was faced. But in terms of not being picked or whatever, I had a pinnacle moment, actually, because even if I was auditioning for something and so on earlier on, mm-hmm. if I was not picked or I was not whatever, I honestly didn't even realize I was being rejected. Yeah, I mean, when I was younger, I didn't even know I was being you know, rejected. I just mm-hmm. was doing it. I figured, OK, I didn't realize. But when I started to understand all of that was actually in later in adolescence, 17, 18, 19, when I actually stopped uh, you know, acting and, and getting that kind of stuff. And it was an audition that I did. And and part of it is at that point I had an agent. And then every time I was getting called into these like calls and stuff, she was always telling me, you're a shoe in, you're a shoe in. And then I would get to these auditions and I was the only black person there. And I was like, the part wasn't even for anyone like me. Mm. And while I appreciated her just making sure I got out there, that's, I think, when I first started realizing, oh, okay, I'm never going to get this. Like, why am I here? But I was older, 17, 18, this kind of thing. That's when I started kind of realizing that. And then when I went to this audition and as a kid, I don't know, I didn't think about how I maybe looked on a camera or how I mm-hmm. projected. I just did it. And I became much more self-conscious and so on as I got a bit older. And I did an audition that was actually for Disney and it was horrible. The audition was <laughs> terrible. The directors and everybody, the casting director laughed because they thought it was hilarious how I yes. like delivered the thing. But At that point, I kind of knew, okay, I don't think this is for me. So Mm -hmm. that was, I think, the time I had gone through kind of a series of, I think, maturing and adolescence and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And that's when I kind of started feeling this thing of rejection that I had to fit a certain thing or be a certain way, um, you know, in order to get certain roles and, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever. And that's when the the acting stuff, I kind of stopped. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. That's an interesting pivot because one thing I am hearing is, it wasn't designed for me, right? So there's this saying that we talk about in strategic design, design thinking, either you're going to design or be designed for. And mm-hmm. 
I think that's a good introduction into what yes. you're doing now and yeah. and what really sparked that. Part of the journey from design actually started first actually in Minneapolis. In Minneapolis, and it's right. It's funny that you say it's funny that you say that because until now I was I just realized that. I think when I was doing the acting stuff, there was some things that happened along my way where I had a bit more control. And when we talk mm-hmm. about designing your life and being in that kind of place, that's where my realization of the power that I had in my own creativity and creating things. Mm-hmm. It started to happen a little earlier on. So I had been acting, but then I also took a real interest in like the costume department at the theater wow. and the costume designers. And I would look at, they would, you know, show these sketches for the costumes and I would see how they built. Cause I would go in for my fittings and they would have the sketches and everything. So I wanted to draw like that. And I was always uh, artistic with drawing. So that is actually where I started drawing and sketching. So that was happening all along. And then my dad saw me dancing, doing Michael Jackson, impersonating Michael Jackson. (laughs) And he immediately took me to a nightclub, (laughs) to a a guy, nightclub that he, his buddy of his own. And he brought me there. I was like 14, I think. And he said, see what my son can do. And so he turns on a thing. I get on the stage and I just started dancing. And I'm like, bring him back. To-. So my dad take, took me all around Minneapolis trying to find a white glove and whatever. Like the show and on the road, baby. Yes. He <laughs> brought me down to that night. Because here I was in this nightclub underage and they had me in the back. And anyway, they had, he said, we have a halftime show for you. Or like a, there was a, a, a show going on. I started performing and went out doing Michael Jackson lip syncing and people started throwing money up on the stage and stuff. And that was the start of something else. And that was me kind of creating my own thing. And I actually started from that point on, it just like snowballed. And I actually started doing that professionally. I actually started getting bookings, all sorts of stuff from impersonating Michael Jackson. This was the thriller day. This is this wow. is back when the thriller came out. Eugene so, has had many lives, people. Yes. Okay. So <laughs> that happened parallel. And so these kind of things, my designing, sketching, Michael Jackson impersonation, I started making my own costumes, all of that kind of stuff showed me that I have the power within myself to do, to create and all of these kind of things. So mm-hmm. that is where that, I think that's probably why it was easy for me to kind of let go uh, playing a character and acting and all of that kind of stuff. It was easier for me to let go. And people, I think, that are actors and transition into directing, filmmaking, writing, producing, and all of that, they kind of go through a certain stage themselves where they want to be kind of like behind the camera controlling things and that. Mm-hmm. that my expression kind of happened a little earlier. Yeah, maybe a little earlier on where I got behind. So I actually started designing things and then I went to school initially for merchandising because I didn't really know like as far as with fashion and there was a person who was leading the fashion department she called me in and she actually asked to speak with my parents my parents obviously came to the university and she insisted that I switch to fashion so she was a big mentor for me and pushed me and so on so that's how I went a bit on that track so that that's what started that and then I started yeah I worked for a company doing it some more commercial kind of design and everything right. and then my own collection and stuff yeah. so by the time I went to Canada I had had my own line that I was doing and what was the name of that line that was just my name Eugene Lumpkin Eugene and it was Lumpkin. Eugene Lumpkin knitwear because I had been working for 
before I started that, I've been working for a, like a luxury sweater company. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were doing, I was doing like sweater designs for like Bergdorf Goodman, Neiman Marcus. Like we would do specials for them as well as the collection for the company. Wow. And it was really great because they were actually based in Minnesota. You were kind of shut and you had to go there, work at the factory, live near the factory. And it was like a whole immersion. And so people don't know that about the fashion industry because they make it, it. It's like this glamorous thing, but it's like, no, literally everything happens under one roof many times. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you're in these industrial, um, <laughs> industrial, like train on the other side of the tracks, exactly um, factories. And yes. it's That's exactly where I was. You know, uh, it's, I it's not, it's <laughs> not as glamorous as they portray it. Okay. No, no. But I'm just envisioning that I was actually like cringing <laughs> as you were saying it. I'm like, ah, yeah, I, I, I hated it there. And they had no, they had an air conditioner in the design office itself, but the rest of the factory, there was no air conditioning. And then the owner of the factory, he was the owner of the company, was German. Mm. And he ran everything like this. And I tell you, I did not, that was where my discipline came. And that's where I used that all the way through. It was in college, I started picking up a few things, but you know, it was really working for Bernie that he's like a drill sergeant. And the Germans, (laughs) they have their. I mean, they don't miss a beat for sure. And like they work really hard, Mm -hmm. always very honest. So not going to sugarcoat anything for you. I'm (laughs) sure he he did. Exactly. And he was, so it was boot camp for, and I I really at a point was like, first of all, I'm not letting nobody talk to me like this. That's what I thought. Finally, I, my mother also was kind of like, no, you're not quitting. You're going to do what you need to do. And, and so I, and so I, I I really wanted to quit, but I didn't. And then I finally just had to just say, Gene, be quiet, follow what's needed. And I ended up learning a ton and I ended up becoming such an expert. It was like one day, everything just clicked because we had to do everything from designing it, sketching it, drawing it, creating it. Mm -hmm. We were working on sweater knit. So it's very technical. So Mm -hmm. we had to then also be able to technically produce it. We had to do all the fittings. We had to work with the pattern maker and everything. And it was literally like, and he would just let you, basically, you had to go through the whole process when things didn't work, things didn't fit. You were using the wrong material with the wrong whatever. They would announce on the loudspeaker, Eugene, please come to staging. Eugene, please come to, I would be running around with my sketches and all my tech stuff you should i was um, i was like oh my god you know everything and then and he would be sitting there telling me eugene you're slowing down the factory you put the wrong thing you have the wrong pattern with the. you have to make sure you put the right information and i was like oh you know i mean things would be it would be a disaster i thought he was gonna fire me but he didn't and one day it just all clicked i just I was got organized. I got on top of things. I got, I understood technically what needed to be done as well as what I wanted to create creatively. I did my prototypes. I followed the thing. I was on time and I was cranking out all these things. And then I started working with their customers doing like the private label stuff. And they really started like, oh, we really want Eugene to design this for us. We really want you. So, and then we, I traveled to Europe with them and then to New York, you know, so I got exposed to, to coming to Paris and going to the fabric shows and 
everything like this. So it was really for me, like, yeah, it just, it got me over maybe this hump of having an idea or thought, but then being able to follow it through, complete it and also be able to do it again. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so forth successfully. Right. So yeah, I had a lot of things that happened in between getting to, by the time I got to New York, you know what I mean? Because I had had that and that experience. Wow. Yeah. Then I decided to start my own line and my brother had started playing at that point. He was at playing college football and he had won all these awards and stuff. And then he got drafted Okay, and he was uh, playing. And then of course his brother had to dress him, you know, of course. So, <laughs> of course. So, yeah, so I walk started, into these yeah. games. Yeah. Looking good. Exactly. He started bringing me into the fold with a lot of the NFL guys and stuff like that. His, you know, his teammates and other people. So yeah, I started a line and, and they were, a lot of the guys are so supportive. And so I would go around and do these little trunk shows during the season. And wow. we would go and, and my brother, Gene, come on, we, you go meet me in DC because we mm. were playing the Redskins and whatever. Mm-hmm. My buddy is such, such. So I would go a lot of times mm. to these players' houses or whatever. I'd bring all my samples. We put everything up. And then your brother did this, your brother did this. And wow. these guys would be like, order me this, order me that, measure me up. Da, 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 da. And that's how, I mean, wow. we pull in thousands. You know wow. I mean? So that got it. That Yeah, it got me. And Sean, so that I had started this business, kept it going. And then I, I found a, like a, a person in New York to, to help me with like sales and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I got a little showroom and yeah, started kind of selling. So, I mean, it just started happening wow you know this way and then yeah fashion is not an easy business let's talk about it yeah but there's yeah. one thing to to start the line but then it's like sustaining it exactly. and that is one of the big questions that i have for the show uh, is mm-hmm. how might we democratize fashion especially luxury fashion for mm-hmm. creators of color so that we can thrive and sustain in business so mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about oh, that. How might wow. we? How yeah. might we? Because <laughs> I'm still studying. You know? <laughs> There's, of course, things I have learned along the way. I think what's really exciting now, we talk about disruption in many industries, disruption of business models, models of how things have to work. And it's funny that fashion is, as an apparel, is led by trends. And you think that's the most forward, but the industry itself actually is not as forward as you would think. I mean, they're adapting and adopting digital technology now mm-hmm. when other industries did this a long while ago. Right. And I think also just the skill of actually making clothes. I mean, the one thing is, is that it, it's still a physical thing that has to happen, whether you're manufacturing in Bangladesh or you're doing couture in Paris or anything else. It's still a a skill of someone, a fabric material that is cut, sewn, put Mm -hmm. together. So there's a lot of hand and skill that goes into actually creating and making clothes. And as far as I have heard, there's no trend in the near future, far off future, whatever, that's saying people are going to be going nude. People are going to be wearing clothing. So we can be sure of that for a while yet. Of course, there's digital only. There's a lot of things happening. But, you know, as long as people need to cover themselves, clothes will be designed, made, bought and sold. 
there's that part of it. So yeah, in the industry, it has led because it's always about change and new style, seasonal changes and Mm -hmm. stuff. So of course we have the need to wear things as the seasons change. But then there's also the part of creating fashion and design where people want to look a certain way and and this, that, and that. So there's a big part of trend. So all of this change is kind of happening. Disruption has happened in the industry, new ways of doing things. And the industry, I think, has lagged a bit in terms of adapting and adopting things. Mm-hmm. And I've been guilty a bit myself because I came about at a time when you had to do this and you needed to do this, and all of these kind of things. And then mm-hmm. as a certain generation then came about, they weren't coming from traditional fashion design schools or whatever. Mm-hmm. They were starting their own collections coming out of, when you look at Virgil Abloh, Virgil Abloh did not go to fashion school. No. You know? And this is kind of like, so that to me was a big like disruptor, I think, because right now there has been a lot of democratization that's happened that to be able to create and do clothes, create a collection and things like that. Um, power to be able to do that right now. There's a lot of different tools and stuff that exist today that mm-hmm. didn't. I mean, and the music industry is the same way. Right. Before you might've had to know how to play a piano or play an instrument in order to produce a song, you know what I mean? Or whatever, or actually be able an artist to do it. And Prince was coming along in Minneapolis, you know, he played all these instruments. Mm-hmm. And then to today where a lot of it is done digitally. And so you can express yourself through music creatively without necessarily having to know how to play. And people might question whether or not you're a true artist. Mm-hmm. I don't, get myself into that debate because when Mm -hmm. I start to get myself into that or this kind of thing, we see that the world changes anyway. And what happens is you start closing yourself off. And this is what we're saying about how do we democratize and bring these things. I think part of it is the unlocking things that have been access Mm -hmm. and limited to people. Some of this has happened. There's people who have gone outside of the fashion system have now created their own brands and things. They didn't need to Because when I started my line back in the day, I was one of the first people to go to some of these trade shows where they had a designer area. And there were a few buyers from key places that kind of controlled whether or not this person or that person would even get seen or shown or whatever. And if you wanted to start your own line, you'd have to open up your own shop someplace and now you have the internet. You can put something on Shopify for heaven's sake, you know what I mean? You can just put something out. And That I think has a a very powerful tool. And that is something that has helped people of color. I think it has given us a lot of strength because as we know, a lot of these trends and stuff have started with us. We have never been able to have the benefit of that. You know what I mean? So today there's a lot more control and stuff happening, thank goodness. So that has really, really helped, I think, open up the door so people can kind of kick through, but it's been unwittingly done. It's because they can't be denied. When I had actually had my collection and I was telling you that I got a showroom in New York and had started selling, mm-hmm. we were sharing a showroom with someone who they had were a publicist and they had some different lines. And my brother was in New York and I was back in Minneapolis and he said, yeah, I'm at the showroom. He said, and they're setting up, taking some pictures of stuff. He said, this stuff's kind of colorful and I don't know what it is, but there's some guy here and they've got this stuff and, and they're taking these pictures. I, I don't know. I think it's called FUBU. And I was like, wow. And, and he's like, yeah, he said, they're, they're, they're going to launch this new line. And he said, and they're, I think they're from like Queens. And my grandmother lived in Queens, a Hollis 
Yeah, off of Hollis Avenue. Wow. Yeah, Farmers Boulevard all around there. And so in, in Hollis, off of, of Farmers Boulevard. And so he goes, yeah, it means like for us, by us. And I was like, huh? You know what I mean? And wow. I had no idea. And it says who did it and who that was. Right. But that was kind of the first things where we took a bit of control. And I know with my line, that was part of the thing too, because my brother was playing. So he was able, he had access with the players. So we right. were kind of going out making it happen. We still are kicking in those doors a mm. bit. I think there are these tools and the question is how might we continue to leverage, you know, these tools, but do them in a, even in a, in a greater way there. I do feel now that, okay, there's a lot of things happening. There is a, an organization called Raise Fashion. Okay. In New York, that has given me some mentorship support. That is one of their goals, mm-hmm. actually, to help democratize. So they are bringing together resources, not financial resources, but resources to help people of color, brands, designers get access to accountancy support, marketing support, mentorship, all of these kinds of things. That's what their objective is and call is to do. So there is a lot of like kind of things behind it. With all of that also being said, how do we actually then see real actionable change and things really happening? Again, there's been talk about things. We see some things, but then at the same time, I'm still trying to create my opportunities. Nobody's necessarily calling me any more than they were, you know, before. So that's something that is not necessarily happening. We are still having to be inventive and push our own things, toot our own horn, things like this. And that's so major key. And I just said that actually, I just dropped some value added content on the Instagram page. And it was like 10 ways to break into the fashion industry. Mm -hmm. And number one was just like creating the opportunity when no one gives it to you. Yeah, you are so good. You are so good with putting this thing. That's exactly that is one sentence, and you have boom, put it together. I just fifteen minutes. Yes, it just resonates. It just resonates with me because that's exactly what it is. It's kind of you have to take this show on the road, and you don't know who's going to give you a chance. You don't even know if you can get into the trade show or if you can afford the booth or what have you to have that visibility. And so I think there are a lot of opportunities, especially with digital now, a lot of people doing digital yeah. showrooms, digital fashion shows. I don't know if you had the opportunity to see Hanifa. Oh my gosh. Oh, yeah. I mean, I would love to have her on the show too, but you know, just the 3D renderings of yeah their fashion show during a time where everything was shut down. Mm -hmm. You've been working on this collection. How do I still get it out to the world? And how inventive was that to put that on and to have the 3D renderings actually shaped like a person, pervacious person. And I mean, it was just very thoughtful. And then she did a whole storyline around what was going on in the Congo and some of the challenges of the mining and the things that are happening over in the Congo. Uh, well, you so, know, Belgium, but, but it, it's the Belgian Congo. You know what I mean? So here we have lots of Congolese. I have uh, some very good friends that are Congolese here and stuff. And I have been, yeah, you talk about woke about a few things. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, I didn't even know some of the stuff that had transpire. I knew a bit about some things, but you know, 
that's the thing. We have, of course, as Black people, we, there's a certain collective history we have, but we also have a, uh, a different history in, in the U.S. Yeah. and a different experience. And then also a lot of these different nations have different histories and experiences that sometimes we might hear a bit about, but don't completely understand. I have friends from Rwanda here because Belgium and Rwanda have a relationship. They were colonized and stuff by the Belgian Congo, the, the Congo as well. Mm-hmm. So very interesting. And all the things with the mining and it's like the cobalt, it's cobalt, right? I think it's the cobalt that they get. It's what's powering mm-hmm. all of our cell phones. That's where it's all coming from. And the Congo is one of the richest of, of minerals and everything like that, that the world actually accesses. The, it's like 80% or something like that mm-hmm. of what we need to power these devices. They're mining it in the Congo. And it's really something else. It's really, really something mm-hmm. Um Mm. And so, yeah, that was, you know, and I still well, that's something I didn't even know, you know, yeah, uh, it's and, there. Yeah. If we get a chance one time, I will have, because you know, I ask questions and probe often here when with other black people that live here, grew up here or from African, you know, mm. African descent, they have a little different experience. And sometimes they don't readily share things because I feel like in the U S collectively as African-Americans, we are unified in a way that I feel feel that African people here are not necessarily so because they're mm-hmm. all from different nations. Our rivals, I mean, someone who's South African mm-hmm. is different from somebody who is from West Africa, someone mm-hmm. who's Ethiopian, Somalian. They're different from someone who's Congolese, someone who's mm-hmm. Kenyan. Very different experience. So to lump all of them together into one collective group, they do have Pan-African things, but it's different. It's, it, there's different dynamics and stuff that are going on. We are collective in the U.S. and that's a very powerful thing. We have been leading a lot of things and, but there's a lot going on in in those worlds, but you got to understand the dynamics almost individually between those countries and the things that are happening. And that's been a real experience, I think, for me. So when I kind of come in and talk about a Black experience Mm -hmm. with some of my friends who are maybe Rwandan, um, it doesn't always ring with them because mm-hmm. they're like, I mean, they have certain things as a black suit, but some of it is like, well, I'm also, I'm Rwanda and I have this kind of, my family's a refugee. We can't hit the, all this kind of stuff. So this is right. a very interesting thing. But yeah, because that, to- yeah, no, I mean, I, I totally mm-hmm. hear we are as Americans and privileged and we've made mm-hmm. choices to say, hey, I want to go over to Europe because of, because I just want to simply live a better life. I want to live a different mm-hmm. life. And I think for them, it's more so it wasn't really a choice. There's a lot of trauma around like that route and that transition. And while Americans, we can all say, or African-Americans, we can all kind of say, oh, we kind of got here. We all got it, got here on the boat somehow, mm-hmm. some way, mm-hmm. some, somehow, some way we're all descendants mm-hmm. of Africa or the indigenous people or land in mm-hmm. North America. So I think they have a very different experience because something that we may romanticize living Mm. in these places could be very much traumatizing for them and maybe that's why it's hard to to talk about it Uh, yeah it's yeah and and, and like i said i was watching i was watching something about this i have to look at it but it was literally like the experience of going to the water and how like that may be like a very peaceful place for people, but knowing you had to cross the water to get to another foreign country just to get mm-hmm. to safety can bring up a lot of other trauma. So that was very, very, very deep. What an episode. You disruptors want more? 
Make sure you turn on your notifications so you know when the latest and greatest has dropped for your listening pleasure. You can find Eugene Lumpkin on LinkedIn, or you can check out his beautiful design studio and consulting firm, Atelier Tens. Please listen, like, share, and subscribe in that order to help us grow, y'all. Destined to Disrupt is ready to give you more episodes, more gems, and more dope interviews. So make sure you hit that share button. Okay, catch y'all next time. And don't forget to disrupt.